Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rita Madeira. Rita is the African Program Officer at the International Energy Agency based in Paris, that's the IEA. The IEA was created in the 1970s to serve as a think tank, a policy institute, advising governments on policies and practices to secure a sustainable energy future. The agency is at the heart of the global dialogue on the energy transition, as you might imagine. And I'm hoping that today Rita is going to shed some light on it uh, for us on what it's going to take for Africa and those African energy related development goals, specifically SDG 7, to be achieved on time and in full. We have a wicked challenge ahead of us on the African continent with more than 600 million people still without access to reliable electricity. So that supplies some context. Thanks, Rita, for joining us today. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. I'm going to follow our usual format, which is to invite our guests to introduce themselves, provide us a little bit of background on your studies, where you grew up, and the career choices that you've made, and specifically the work that you're currently doing at the IEA. So over to you, if I may, Rita. Great. Thanks, Marcus. So maybe I should start by saying that it's funny that my first thought is that sometimes you don't choose careers, they choose you. If I know it's a bit of a cliche, but the way it happened with me. So I was born in Portugal, born and raised. I did have some time living abroad in the United States, for example. So I think that sparked my interest early on for having a broader outlook and looking to different latitudes and different mindsets and way of looking at things. But I actually started out as a lawyer. So I've always been drawn to international relations, geopolitics, history, economics, and the likes. But I started practicing as a lawyer in Portugal. And by a great coincidence, and why I said that career kind of chose me and not the other way around, I applied to an internship sponsored by the Portuguese government. And basically the concept is that they match the profile of the candidates with the profile of the hosting institution. And you basically just need to be open and adventurous and basically go wherever they send you. So I matched, I know this kind of sounds like a dating profile, but I matched with the African Legal Support Facility, which is hosted by the African Development Bank. I went to Tunisia and I started my career there. It's an institution that has a really interesting mission of leveling the playing field of negotiations between African governments and the private sector. And I was working with multidisciplinary teams advising governments on complex commercial transactions mostly in the power sector. So working alongside technical and financial advisors, obviously external legal counsel working with us, and we were negotiating all of the steps of the project. So that includes obviously structuring the project, obviously project finance deals. I work mostly on solar PV and hydropower projects. We were negotiating the power purchase agreements, so on and so forth. And it's actually how I got into the energy world through electricity, because I got so fascinated with the financial models at the technical studies, not just the feasibility studies, but technical studies for the projects. And I got fascinated by that and wanted to learn more. I wanted to become an engineer on top of being a lawyer, which is actually not that far because both are problem solvers. And I was lucky enough to get to travel across the continent. I was actually based in Abidjan for most of the time. So in Cote d'Ivoire, where the permanent headquarters of the African Development Bank is now. 
and it was just an amazing experience and it brought me here. Thanks for that, Rita. So we've learned that you're an energy enthusiast and a lawyer by training. You've had exposure to project finance across the African continent, working and supporting African governments in their negotiations on complex transactions. You find yourself now at the IEA. Tell us about your role as the Africa Program Manager there. What does that entail? Sure. And maybe let me just thank you for the great introduction or presentation of the IEA earlier on, on your opening remarks. So the IEA, as you mentioned, is a leading yeah. organization when it comes to energy data and analysis. We cover all fuels and technologies. So I should mention that we're agnostic when it comes to fuels and technologies. We care about cost and the mission of contributing to securing a clean, affordable, and secure energy future for all. So the IEA is, in the sense, a reference for policymakers worldwide, and it carries an immense convening power that can bring leaders together to discuss key energy topics. And obviously this is relevant as ever in the current state of affairs. So my role within the International Energy Agency, so I'm part of the Global Energy Relations Division of the IEA. And I think the best way I could put it to make it clear what my role entails is that we are the diplomatic arm of the IEA. We specialize in particular regions of the world. My team focuses specifically on sub-Saharan Africa, and that means that we have a threefold role when it comes to the region. So firstly, we craft a strategic vision for IEA bilateral work with the continent, and that means individual countries, but also regional initiatives. Secondly, we, and this is the core diplomatic work that the role entails, so we build and develop those relationships with some intelligentsia, right? We look at what's happening on, on the ground, what's happening on the geopolitical and macroeconomic context on the region. And then thirdly, we coordinate Africa-related work across agency, and that can be bilateral work and also kind of more uh, regional analysis, where we lead and co-lead some of those specific analysis focused on the continent. So I would say in a nutshell, we blend the strategic, the human and the technical aspects of this job, and I say that it's a fantastic job in my view. So thank you, Rita, for that clear explanation of your role and the role of the department that you're leading. I gave at the outset an overview of the macro picture and that scale of the challenge. More than 600 million people in Africa without access to reliable electricity. There's also a magnificent opportunity that Africa has, which the clean energy transition presents for the continent, given the abundance of potential in renewable energy sources and technologies and the abundance also of critical minerals to sustain the clean energy transition. And I hope we'll talk about that in just a bit. But I'm also very conscious that there's big disparity between nations on the continent. And it would be wrong to paint a universal picture of the continent without getting a better national perspective. By way of example, I mean, Kenya is really very far advanced in terms of its supply of renewables, that's wind, solar and geothermal. South Africa's got its problems with, with load shedding at the moment, which are very well publicised, but is advancing pretty progressively from a heavy coal dependence into renewables and Egypt and Morocco stand out. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you select the countries that you work with and the disparities and how you tailor the advice that you give around energy policy to frame investments in those nations. There is a great question and one that I'm personally very passionate about because, as I mentioned before in my previous role in getting to travel and to work with all of these countries across the continent, and personally I covered a lot of West, uh, Central and Southern Africa, but it's very clear those regional differences. So for the IEA, it's also about identifying 
areas of work with specific countries that make sense in specific regions. So, for example, we have an excellent collaboration with Senegal that has been going on for the past three years. We actually have a memorandum of understanding signed with them that we just renewed in December, and we have a full work program with them. So I would say that it's both countries coming to us and us going to countries, identifying countries that it makes sense and it's easy and natural to work with, and then we can focus on the specific challenges and opportunities for those countries based on their resources, based on where they are at when it comes to electricity access and access to clean cooking, the pathways that the specific country envisage to reach their development and climate-related goals. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Picking up on that point, at COP, preceding COP, and in the aftermath of COP, we've heard African leaders being very clear about exactly that point that you make, the necessity that individual nations have to choose their own energy mix. The continent has abundant natural gas. I forget the quantums, but I do recall reading it in the excellent annual report you do, the last version of the 2022 um, African Energy Outlook. I think it's in the range of 5,000 billion cubic meters of natural gas resources that the continent has, which haven't yet been approved for development. President Adesina of the ADB, the institution you referenced earlier, is adamant that African nations should not be constrained in their ability to increase natural gas production. He's pointed out that in the event that they are successful in achieving three times production, that this would only contribute a meagre amount additional to global emissions, taking Africa's quota of global emissions from about 3% to 3.5%, I think your report states. How does the IEA stand in terms of exploitation of fossil fuels and the contribution of this energy source in terms of the development trajectories for African nations specifically? Okay, this is a great multi-layered question. So let me try and unpack it a little bit by looking at its different dimensions. And first, I would start by talking about the role of natural gas in domestic value creation, because this is really something that is very clear for the IEA. And you mentioned the Afghan Energy Outlook. It's something that we really looked at in detail in that publication that we launched last year. So in that analysis, we studied ways that Africa can achieve all of its energy-related development goals, including universal access to modern energy services by 2030 and the full implementation of all African climate pledges. In our analysis, natural gas plays a vital role, particularly for certain applications whose energy needs are substantial or which cannot be met by electricity or other alternatives cost-effectively today. So these include primarily fertilizer production, which obviously can play a critical role in enhancing food security in the respective country and region, but also things like steel and cement production, water desalination, and other high-intensity energies. So our analysis in this report that you mentioned actually sees natural gas demand rise in Africa through to 2030 with all of these applications contributing increasingly to growth over time. In addition to that, increased domestic use of natural gas could help displace costly oil products, so for example, diesel and heavy fuel oil. And this is particularly important during periods of sustained high oil prices that we've seen over the past year or so especially for countries that are net importers of those products, because obviously high prices will hurt vulnerable populations the most and force countries which already have narrow fiscal space to face huge subsidy burdens. And it also affects progress to something I mentioned earlier, access to clean cooking as liquefied petroleum gas for LPG becomes progressively unaffordable and people revert to traditional biomass and charcoal. So 
In a nutshell, in terms of the domestic case for the use of natural gas for African countries to develop and industrialize, I would just add that natural gas also plays a role in meeting the needs of industry and the power sector as a flexible and dispatchable source of electricity generation to complement renewables. And here you would still need to look at specific economics of switching to gas because they vary depending on the sources of cost of transport. There are two really important points that I would like to stress on Africa's current and prospective gas sector development. And the first one is the one that you already mentioned in the beginning of your question, which is the impact of gas development on Africa's greenhouse gas emissions. Your numbers were absolutely right. So there are more than 5,000 billion cubic meters of natural gas resources that have been discovered and not yet all approved for development. And maybe just to give you some more figures and to give the audience some more figures, these resources could provide an additional 90 billion cubic meters of gas a year by 2030. And then as you mentioned, even if countries across the continent were to develop and use every last molecule of this gas, the cumulative effect on CO2 emissions over the next 30 years would be around 10 gigatons, which means that the share of emissions for the African continent would rise from 3 to 3.5%. And this is a really important point for the agency because the impact of these additional emissions would be minimal on a global scale but the developmental impact could be very significant for these African countries. And we're thinking of countries like Mozambique, Senegal, Mauritania, Tanzania, where this could really have transformational effects for the population of these countries. And maybe I will just add here quickly that my second point being that best practices are very important and care should be taken to mitigate methane leaks and to adopt methane abatement measures is very critical to both maximize the monetization of the resource and to cut emissions intensity. And the IAS resources online with this regard. If you allow me, I will just answer with the second layer of the question, which is the case for African natural gas export. And that's where it gets a little trickier. And that means looking at the bigger picture and having in mind two conflicting time horizons. So the short term, and that means looking at things like incentives, like price signals incentives linked to the volatility of gas markets, and then the long term, which is anticipating the declining trends in gas and what that means for new supplies. So on the short term, and we've seen this very clearly over the past year or so, there seems to be a clear opportunity and incentive, right? So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted many countries to seek to reduce their reliance on Russian resources, including energy. And this is particularly salient in Europe, where growing concern over security of supply has put alternative sources in the spotlight. And obviously this would mean immediately neighboring North Africa because of its proximity, because there's already existing infrastructure connections, but also in sub-Saharan Africa. So again, sub-Saharan African countries with projects and advanced stage of development like Mozambique, Congo, Senegal and Mauritania that I mentioned could benefit from this near-term opportunity. Now, the longer-term potential is a bit trickier because... To meet additional natural resources from Europe would be, the needs would be smaller with the decline in gas use that is implied with the achievement of Europe's ambitious uh, decarbonization targets. And this prospect complicates investment decisions as it would oblige new projects to find non-European export markets that are set to continue to grow in the longer term. And we're looking at emerging markets and developing economies mostly. And this would be necessary not only to secure project financing, obviously, as you know, the revenues to repay the investment with a return. And this means in practice that risks for those projects would be higher and for more heavily on project development. I'm glad you brought that clarity to it. So gas has a vital role to play 
in the continent's development in the way that you've so clearly outlined. But you've also outlined the very evident challenge, and that is that exports, certainly into the Europe under the EU Green Deal, could be locked out because the EU is proposing to impose a carbon tax on goods and services originating from countries that use fossil fuel-based electricity grids. And therefore, there's a very real prospect that these nations, whether it's Mozambique or Tanzania or Senegal or Mauritania, in the way that you suggest, would be left with stranded assets or certainly with production that um, wouldn't be eligible for import into Europe. I mean, that poses a significant challenge in and of itself. When you combine that with the fact that the investment community is very much more environmentally conscientious today and is attaching a higher cost of capital to oil and gas projects and oil and gas companies. You're then in a situation where the opportunity may be great, the deposits may be there, there may be the important contribution in the way that you've analysed and assessed that gas will make to addressing the energy needs of the continent. But where the financing is too expensive and where the future markets to justify and sustain that financing don't necessarily exist, it's a real predicament, isn't it? No, no, definitely it is. I would say that when we look at those complexities and one of the challenges here, and as you rightly mentioned, is I presented like one of the major usage that we see for natural gas on the continent is to spur industrialization and domestic development, right? But it also means that it needs to local demand has to be spread and created, right? And there's also yeah. issues around pipelines and heavy infrastructure then have the real risk that you mentioned of becoming stranded assets. So one of the things that we're looking at, and I have to say that we haven't looked at it yet specifically on the African context, but we're looking at it more broadly because in a different way and at a different scale, the project is also posed in some other jurisdictions and some other regions. But we're looking at ways that infrastructure that would be built for the development of natural gas and tapping into these uses that I mentioned before, especially for high heat industrial applications, how it could be prepared to a switch to clean energy fuels, such as hydrogen and ammonia, for example. And in some countries, I mean, it would not make sense for all the countries and all the contexts, and it's really nuanced. As I said, we need to develop this analysis a bit further, but it could be one way to look at it and anticipate those challenges and weave them in the current investments. But I'm glad you brought in hydrogen. My colleagues and I work quite closely with the African Hydrogen Partnership. Indeed, Africa Practice is a member of the AHP. And like you, we've identified the role that infrastructure that's in place or being developed for natural gas can play for the hydrogen economy, particularly for those countries that are coastal, that have strong winds, good solar, and where they have actually a comparative advantage for production of cheap green hydrogen. Those countries are advancing now with their plans, and we've seen Egypt, Morocco, Mauritania, Namibia, South Africa now with a very well-developed hydrogen society roadmap, and Kenya, amongst others, who are putting out plans that we hope will see them be able to establish really globally competitive hydrogen projects and hydrogen value chains, whole hydrogen economies that would exist around those projects. The prospect is very exciting because in the way that you alluded to, it can be a catalyst for industrialization, for clean industrialization, therefore creating the demand for energy in these markets and catalyzing industrialization, manufacturing and development. And that's the exciting prospect. There's even the prospect that certain global manufacturers would locate themselves in proximity to where the energy is produced, the clean energy and then export to markets like Europe who are demanding that 
these exporters to the European Union can demonstrate that they have used non-fossil fuel-based electricity bids to power the manufacturing process. So all of that to say the potential and the opportunity around green hydrogen specifically, I think, is really exciting. But more broadly, renewables, hydro, solar, geothermal, wind, Africa or certain African nations' comparative advantages in these areas that can really be a catalyst for development in the way that you referenced earlier. Now, these technologies rely on sources of minerals and metals, and whether it's lithium or cobalt or nickel or bauxite or manganese or graphite, there are many to list. Africa also has abundant resources in these areas, these rare earths and these other metals. I wonder to what degree the IEA is focusing its support to African government in this area of critical mineral value chains so that nations that have these assets can develop the appropriate policies, create the appropriate incentives for companies to invest, establish resilient supply chains that can service the global market. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on critical minerals, the clean energy transition, and the work that you're doing to support mineral producing countries? Absolutely. I feel though that first I just need to react something that you said before on hydrogen is something that <laughs> that we're also yeah. working on and, and super aligned with what you just mentioned. And I'm very excited to let you know that we're actually working on some small piece of analysis that will focus on Mauritania and Namibia. So two separate pieces of analysis looking exactly at what you've just mentioned in terms of how can this hydrogen potential based on renewable energy, fantastic potential to like mostly solar and wind, and how it could be used to potentially catalyze renewable energy deployment and to foster development, achieving universal electricity goals as well. So I just wanted to put that out there because I just thought it would make sense for me to mention it. But now back to your question on critical minerals, and I'm so glad you raised it because this is such an important topic and is something that the IEA pays close attention to. So maybe let me start by laying out the current state of affairs on the African continent before looking a little bit at the outlook and maybe talk a little bit more about the resources that the IEA has out there and the kind of work it does to support governments across the world and in Africa. So in terms of the landscape, Africa, as we know, accounts for over 40% of global reserves of cobalt, manganese and platinum, which all, as we know, are key minerals for batteries and hydrogen technologies. And today, Africa is already a major supplier to the global market. So in 23 African countries, minerals represent over 30% of total export product. And then if you look at some granular details and looking at specific minerals, we know that South Africa already has around 70% of share of global production of platinum group minerals. Mozambique and Gabon together account for almost 30% of graphite production and so on and so forth. So Today, production of mineral resources is already a vital source of income, representing around 8% of government revenue resource-rich African countries. And revenues from copper and key battery metals production in Africa are estimated to have totaled just over 20 billion United States dollars in 2020. And to put things in perspective, that's around 13% of the global market. Now, in terms of Outlook, as you mentioned, since these minerals are essential for clean energy transitions worldwide, there's obviously immense opportunity, right? And especially in the face of an expected rising demand over the next two decades. With rising demand for these minerals, and this is something that we also looked at in the African Energy Outlook, African revenues from their sale could more than double by 2030 if they maintain their market share today. Now, Unfortunately, investment in mineral exploration in Africa has been declining in recent years, 
And reversing this trend hinges on improved geological surveys, robust governance, improved transport infrastructure, and a particularly strong focus on minimizing the environmental and social impacts of mining operations. And obviously on ensuring local value creation beyond just revenues. And these two last aspects are very important. And I would stress the environmental and social and governance aspect of it as well, ESG, because as manufacturing countries will look to import these minerals, there's a separate debate to be had on whether the value added could also be moved to some African countries, but let me not get into that now. But countries that will import these minerals to manufacture those technologies will look at regions that have the highest ESG standards. More broadly on the IA work, and I think, and this is such a fascinating and relevant topic that I would recommend to all our listeners that they go to the IEA's website and look at the report called The Role of Critical Minerals in Clean Energy Transitions. This report provides a really comprehensive analysis on the complex links between critical minerals and the prospects for a secure, rapid transformation of the energy sector. And then one of the key findings of that report, and I think this will not come as a surprise, but it's supported by the data, is that there is a looming mismatch between the world's strength and climate ambitions and the availability of critical minerals that are essential to realizing those ambitions. And demand is set to soar over the next two decades, not only on the overall requirements, but specific individual minerals, for example, lithium, are set to rise even faster. So these risks and mismatches are analyzed in great detail in this report that I would highly recommend. And in terms of what the IEA is doing, I mean, other than putting out there this really layered analysis on these complexities and including key recommendations, policy recommendations for a new comprehensive approach to mineral security, we also launched and have set up what we call the Critical Minerals Policy Tracker. And this tracker highlights at the global scale prominent policies and regulations that are already in place around the world, policies related to security of supply, to incentivizing new resource development, to ensuring sustainable and responsible production and is something that is very relevant to see the big picture and also to provide benchmarks to compare realities. In terms of work with African countries, we are very keen to collaborate more closely with African governments on this very important topic. It's something that we haven't yet worked on a lot, but we are definitely open to it and work on that. Thank you, Rita, for explaining that. I wanted to talk about finance, if I may. You spent some time, as you mentioned, as a lawyer working on project structuring and project finance. So I'm hoping you can help unpack this issue of the cost of capital. So the continent of Africa attracts far less climate finance than other regions of the world. I think from the statistics I saw, it's roughly around 14% of total climate finance in Africa actually comes from the private sector compared with between 30 and 50% in other regions of the world. One of the key barriers to scaling private finance into clean energy projects on the continent is the high cost of capital. We know, and Al Gore referenced it so eloquently at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, that the cost of financing in the example he gave a solar project in Nigeria is seven times greater than it is in an OECD country. This high cost of capital reflects both real risk, one would assume, but also perceived risk about investment in these economies. I know that the IEA is working on trying to find sort of critical levers to bring down the cost of capital to clean energy projects and specifically to attract private capital. I wonder if you could Tell us about that work and specifically how that is going to support multilateral development banks to increase financial flows to Africa for energy sector development and from private capital as well. 
You've recently established a cost of capital observatory with the World Economic Forum, Zurich and Imperial College in London as partners. Can you tell us more about this initiative and the work that you're doing to help policymakers to address the high cost of capital? Sure. So let me start by saying that the, the cost of capital provides a critical benchmark to assess the risk and return preferences of investors and the pricing of money in the wider economy. And in that sense, as you mentioned, can act as a lever for financial flows to influence prices and choices in the real energy economy. What happens is that often, and you mentioned this in Africa, but it's also true for the wider emerging markets in developing economies, is that decision makers often lack access to reliable financing metrics across sectors and geographies. And this means that inadequate assumptions around the cost of capital, and as you mentioned, the actual and the perceived risks, can lead to the mispricing of those risks. So the Cost of Capital Observatory, which is an initiative from the IEA, the World Economic Forum, ETH Zurich and Imperial College of London, aims to increase transparency in the energy sector and inspire investor confidence, and especially in emerging and developing countries where data on financing costs is scarcer. It's a resource that is available on our website, it's free to use, and it provides estimates of the main underlying risks perceived by capital providers in each country, and also detailed case studies highlighting examples of countries that have reduced those risks. For now, it includes data for Brazil, India, Indonesia, Mexico, and South Africa, but the long-term plan is to have frequent updates and extend the database to cover other countries as well. If we focus our attention on Africa and look at the broader implications of the high cost of capital and how it is a major factor to address to significantly increase clean energy investment. And as you mentioned, the cost of capital can be up to seven times higher in Africa than in the United States or in Europe. And this is problematic not only because it raises the bar for bankable projects, but also it increases the price that end users and governments will ultimately pay for the energy services that are generated by those projects that do reach the threshold of bankability and implementation. For example, and we have great analysis on the Africa Energy Outlook done on this, where the weighted average cost of capital for solar and wind projects in Africa to fall to the average level in advanced economies, financing costs would be reduced by 3.8 billion United States dollars in 2030, lowering the levelized cost of generation of electricity supply to households by 3.4 dollars per megawatt hour, or 40%. In other words, costs of generating electricity would drop by 4% if the cost of capital for solar PV and wind generation projects in Africa was equivalent to that of advanced economies. And this is quite a good illustration of why it is crucial and critical to address those high costs and to really increase the energy flows to the continent. Maybe I'll just end by saying that in our report in the African Energy Outlook, we looked at the financing landscape in Africa. And although Africa accounts for almost one-fifth of the world's population. It attracts less than 5% of global energy investment today. I will just add that one of the questions that we got most frequently after this report came out, the African Energy Outlook, was how can we make this, this sustainable Africa scenario, which is kind of the scenario we modeled on this report where our African countries achieved all of its energy-related development goals, so most notably uh, universal access to energy, on time and in full. So how can this scenario be achieved and how can clean energy investment in Africa increase? So I will say that uh, this is one of the questions that we are currently focusing on in a new report that we are currently preparing in collaboration with the African Development Bank that will look more closely at the current energy investment landscape on the continent, how finance can be designed to overcome current barriers, including the risks that we've been talking about, and also include 
some forward-looking analysis on how to mobilize enough capital from a wide range of sources to support the achievement of those goals. And we hope that this report will contribute to highlighting clearer paths to scale up energy investments and to sparking additional conversations among governments, policymakers, and capital providers. I am personally working on this analysis, and I'm very excited to share that soon. Great. Well, thank you for tackling that for us. I haven't looked at the Cost of Capital Observatory data, but you referenced that it's available freely on your website. I look forward to looking at it and hope to see more African countries. You mentioned South Africa is included in there, but more African countries included. I've long been aware of the cost attached to perceived risks of investing on the continent distinct from the real risks. But I'm also conscious that there's a lot of work needed to be done in certain geographies, certain African territories, to ensure that the policy framework is right and conducive to attracting and sustaining flows of private capital in particular. Thank you for for setting that out. Now to the last question of each of our podcast interviews, and it's to invite you, Rita, to tell us what you're reading or indeed what you're listening to and whether you'd recommend it to our audience. Sure, thanks. I love this question. <laughs> I feel we, we can talk about this for hours because uh, I love books. If, if you allow me, I'll mention quick the podcast, and, and this is something that I listen to on a daily basis almost. Is the, I'm sure previous guests might have mentioned it. It's the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder is a reference when it comes to energy, and it's a really great uh, resource for those interested in beginning to the different uh, aspects of the energy uh, transition. But in terms of books, I'm always reading many things at the time. I just finished a very interesting book called Half-Lives by Lucy Jane, and I really like the pun and the wordplay on the title. It focuses on the scientific and commercial history of radium from its scientific discovery to development of commercial applications and what happens when you still don't know the full implications of the technology that you've just discovered and manipulating for commercial purposes. Obviously, you have some layers of profiteering in that. And with the benefit of hindsight, if you look at some of the applications, and these included, for example, radium glow-in-the-dark paint that was used in watches that soldiers used in the trenches during the First World War. And Ooh. there's a big piece just because, obviously, to produce those watches, you had factory work that hand-painted those radium ticks in the clock. And what they would do, they would use a technique called pointing. They would dip the brush in their tongue to kind of make it pointer so it would be more precise. And obviously then you had histories of cancer, like throat cancer. It was like a big, big mess. And some other application that I found fascinating was the radium baths. So the spa tradition that comes from ancient Rome, where you kind of had oh. bottled radium water. Uh, so uh, anyway, obviously in hindsight, we look at it and we think, how was this possible? But it is possible. It was possible. I think it really is an interesting outlook on what can happen when we still don't have the full information. And there's some level of commercial opportunism as well. So I found it a really interesting read. Remind, it's called Half-Lives, did you say? Uh, Half-Lives by Lucy Jane. Half-Lives by Lucy Jane. Well, I'm going to pick that up. Thank you Welcome. for pointing us to that. Rita, that comes to the end of our interview. It's been lovely to speak to you and to learn about the work of the IEA and the work that you're leading. Thank you for that tour de force. For all of our guests, the IEA website is a fantastic repository for data and analysis. Please go visit it. I think most, if not all, of your information is freely accessible there, which is great. You've reminded us that whilst renewables are going to be the driving force for Africa's electricity sector this decade, the continent's industrialization will still and does still rely on expanding natural gas use. So I'm happy that we've put that to bed. The world's leading energy policy institute has set out the rationale and the case for that. It's great to hear that. We've also been reminded of the scale of the investment challenge is going to be required for Africa to achieve 
its energy and climate goals. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for your time, Rita. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Marcus, for having me. It was a pleasure for me too. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.